Good morning, and it's time for the conversation to begin here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. It is cold out there. It's going up to a high of 51. We thought fall would never get here, and it's here. So don't complain. And when we come back in just a bit, leadership, it's something people strive for, whether it's at work or in the family or anywhere else. And we're going to be talking with author Scott Stein, an expert on leadership, his new book, Leadership Hacks, Clever Shortcuts to Boost Your Impact and Results. Results, impact, and a whole lot more coming up here on 94WIP, the WIP time, 602. And we're back. It's conversation. My name's Peter Solomon. It's 94WIP All Sports Radio. My guest this morning, Scott Stein, management expert, leadership expert, author of the new book, Leadership Hacks, Clever Shortcuts to Boost Your Impact and Results. If you've ever thought there's so much to do at work and so little time, this is the guy for you. Good morning, Scott Stein. Good morning, Peter. How are you, mate? I'm fine. All right. You go into a bookstore, and there are so many books on leadership. Why this one and what makes it different? Yeah, great question. I, I think a couple of reasons. One of the things that I've found um, presenting in the U.S. and Europe as well as in Australia and Asia Pacific is most leaders are looking for practical things. Um, they're tired of the leader th- leadership theory stuff that's kind of spit out in the 1980s, uh, and they want something that's fresh, new, but something that's really practical. And I think that's what I've done in the, in the book Leadership Hacks. What do you mean by practical, though? Can you give me an example? Yeah, I think I was just in Bangkok last week, and um, I was presenting there. And one of the things that I did is I actually went through a delegation hack and, and showed what I learned from some leaders that have been doing this for a number of years on uh, essentially shortcuts that they're using to get things happening faster. And it was great because throughout the whole presentation, they were taking notes. And I think part of that, part of the reason why is that people want to know how do I do it. They don't want to just the fluffy theory side. They want, give me some of the step-by-step ideas I can get my hands into. All right. You mentioned Bangkok. You're down there in Australia. You mentioned working in the U.S. Three very different, yeah. three very different cultures. Is leadership exclusive of culture or does it change with culture? I, I think it, 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 true leadership transcends culture. So it was interesting. When I was in Asia and uh, doing some work in Bangkok, of course, the leadership there is a little bit more subservient. Um, It is a little bit more uh, weight to be led. At the same time, what I've noticed, there are some real young up-and-coming leaders that are really actually kicking some great goals, and part of that is because they're challenging that culture. Um, And same thing in America. You know, in the old days, in, in Australia and America are very similar. But in the old days, if somebody, you know, had the title of leader and manager, people would just put up, especially if they were a bully or if they didn't like them, because they had the title. Um, Not anymore. People are questioning. In fact, a lot of the younger generation are going, why should I follow you? Prove to me that I should give you 110%. Or if they won't follow you or ask you to prove it, they'll sabotage you. Correct. Well, they're either sabotage or they'll leave which is even worse, right? I know some places I've been working with, some clients where I've been brought in and they go, oh, we've got this manager or leader and they're brilliant, you know, as far as their mind and their strategic perspective and everything else, but they just can't keep staff. And it's not just the staff in their own department. 
we're getting feedback that other departments don't even want to work with them. You know, and it's all back to that style and them just not being aware of what they're doing and how they're impacting the people around them. And unfortunately, that makes it a lose-lose for everyone. Absolutely. Is there a secret formula to leadership? Is there one true way to do it? Yeah, I don't think there's one true way. You know, that's the um, the silver bullet, right? Everybody's looking for the silver bullet. Give me the, you know, the, the thing that I can do that just makes it perfect. You know, and that's also the age-old, um, you know, debate. Is leadership genetic or is it learned? Um, and, and, again, from my experience, and you would have probably seen this as well, Peter, it, it's a bit of both. You know, some people I think it's a little bit easier for, but I think most of us, we can actually um, be great leaders, but it just takes some awareness and it takes a little bit of work and some practical tools we can use. Okay. Do you offer us a step-by-step in the book? Yeah, well, the book actually has kind of three main sections. And and um, it's funny because the, the way the book came about is a lot of my clients would say, oh, can you show me how to hack my inbox? You know, and I'd show them and I'd do a one-on-one and they'd go, oh, can you put that together into something? And Because I want to train my staff on how to do that. And, and what ended up happening is over time I'd do these little uh, kind of small papers on it. And eventually one of them said, can you just write a book, thanks? Um, so I said, all right. And, and the way that I've organized the book, there's kind of three sections. And it really is kind of for anybody, any leader that they can use it. The first section is about personal hacks. What are things that an individual leader can do with themselves to get more done in less time? Um, and then the second section is one-on-one hacks. So what are the things, if you've got an individual that's going to follow you or that reports to you, what are some things that you can do to connect with them quicker and, and, and get them doing things? And then the final section is about team hacks. So if you've got an organization or a department or a team, how can you actually hack the entire team and your approach with the entire team? So the kind of practical hacks on all three of those levels. Okay, well, let's look at mindset. Is it simply, mm. I can do this? Is that enough or do you need more? I think, I think most people need more. I think belief and mindset is really critical as far as we need to have the right mindset. We need to make sure that we want to make this happen. We want to be a great leader. We want to inspire people. And we also know that nobody's perfect, including ourselves. And I think, I think mindset is, is very, very important. Um, once you have the mindset, then it's going to take some of the time and energy to make it all come to fruition. And I think part of that, you know, Carol Dweck's an amazing author and and did some great things in her last book, uh, Mindset, The New Psychology of Success. And she started researching, well, how do people's mindsets actually kind of impact them? You know, the first that she talked about was a fixed mindset, and that's kind of the belief that your traits are set for life, you know, which means they'll never change. Um, And then there's what's called the growth mindset, which is based on the belief that your basic qualities are things that you can cultivate over time and you can learn from your mistakes and improve on. And what her research found is the growth mindset is generally more successful, more effective, and those people are actually more fulfilled because they know that they can actually learn to fulfill their actual potential. So I think mindset is is a critical aspect. Okay. What about the approach you take once you've got the mindset? Yeah, I, I think that's where um, a lot of leaders mix it up, right? They, they know that they've got to have the right mindset, so I've got to do something. I've got to hack my approach. I need to do something different. Um, and then they have the best intent in mind, 
but then they go out and try and do something, and quite often, or, or quite often, they actually don't do it in the right order or the right sequence. So they kind of stuff it up in the approach that they take when they're trying to kind of motivate and empower their people. And I think that's that's the interesting thing. Um, most people are on what I call mental autopilot, and I agree. Uh, I think a lot of leaders are as well. They're going through the motions, and sometimes they're not aware of the sequence or the order or the approach they're taking, and it, they're kind of mixing it up. They're getting their priorities wrong. Okay. It seems to me, though, that there are two ways to do it. Do it because I said so. Any trained monkey can replace you. And the other end is, this is a democracy, and sometimes if there's a democracy going on, the leader gets overwhelmed. Is there room in between? Yeah, I, I think today it's a blend of both. You know, there, there is still a hierarchy in business. We know that. There are still positions of authority. Uh, you know, and leaders have the ultimate uh, responsibility to making, you know, things happen and getting things done. I think the trick is if they take the old traditional you know, rank-and-file approach and belittle their people and talk down at them and just kind of force them to do things, um, uh, they're going to be limited in what they can achieve. You know, what we're finding is if, if the leader can empower their people, motivate them, stretch them beyond where they thought they were possible, that's when they get staff that will walk over cut glass for them. And I see that all the time. I, I was working with a – large um, uh, military group, which is kind of interesting. And these were, this is an Australian military group, and at any given time, I was looking at their culture, and it was interesting because they got into the process of just, you know, promoting leaders that had been there based on tenure and and years of length. And what they found is some of those, those leaders didn't have the skills to motivate their people. So they were actually a bit stuck because they said, well, traditionally, whoever's been there the longest would be the best leader, and people would follow them. But they, what they noticed is because of technology, 24 hours, you know, seven days a week, digital explosion, um, that approach doesn't work anymore. They didn't have the flexibility to deal with it. So I think we've got to have a blend. We've got to have leaders that are strong. We've got to have leaders that hold people accountable. But we also have to have leaders that know how to motivate, inspire, and connect with their people. So it's a bit of both. As Shakespeare said, uh, I, there's the rub. How do you motivate someone? They already get a paycheck. What's left to do? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the interesting thing, if you look at it, uh, and a lot of the research that comes up, even, you know, Gallup and everything else has got a disengaged workforce. And, you know, but we've got pockets of businesses that do amazing things and have leaders that really motivate their people. And, and the interesting thing, it's not about money anymore. I mean, money's important. We've got to survive on money. But as far as a motivator, you know, what I've found quite often is somebody doesn't like their leader or their manager and they don't know how to motivate them, um, they will do the bare minimum to get things across the line. So what that means is if we've got massive targets we have to achieve, um, we're not going to achieve it if we're just doing the bare minimum. Nobody can operate that way any longer. So we've got to take a look at how do we actually engage people and light them up so they will perform above and beyond. And there's some great places that are uh, doing that. The challenge is it's just not happening, uh, you know, broadly enough. An example, again, might help. How, what have you seen people use, if not money? Yeah, yeah. I think there's been a number of things. I know uh, one of the clients that I worked with, they actually put together this massive kind of um, 
cultural development program, and what they did is they asked their staff, what do you want? What's going to motivate you? You know, what do you want? And what they actually found, it was very, very interesting, and they found quite a bit with some of the younger generation. A lot of them said, I just don't want to be paid more money. Um, they said, you know what, give me a little bit of time. Give me some time where I can get off early on a Friday and go to my kids' uh, you know, assembly at their school so I can actually be there or I can go to their sporting event that might be at 3.30 on a Wednesday. Right? And I think looking at the things that motivate staff and creating that environment will actually get them to perform higher. Okay. Got it. Um, what comes after approach? Yeah, I think after approach is about the impact. You know, because there's really the, the, the critical things. If you want to really hack your leadership, as we talked about, you've got to have the right mindset. You've got to have the right approach, which means you need to know how to actually go about it. But then you have to be aware of your impact. And the impact is what separates a typical leader from a great leader. You know, anybody in a position of authority can demand people to do things. Uh, but the incredible leaders are the ones that have the ability to kind of really motivate and inspire them to get them to do things above and beyond what they thought were actually possible. And I think, you know, money is important, but I don't think it's the most important things to people. Um, and and the, if you look at leaders, there's not a perfect leader. But the ones that people actually remember are the ones that over time did something with them and impacted them in a way that kind of blew them away. I remember one of my first bosses, his name was Andy, and we were doing this big program, and it was a national program, and I had stuffed up on something, and, and I was really beating myself up over it. And I'll never forget, he kind of came in my office, you know, and this is about a week afterwards, and he just had a quick discussion with me, and he said, what's going on? And I told him, I explained it. I said, I let everybody down. I shouldn't have let that happen. It was a big mistake. He said, mate, you're still learning. You're not going to be perfect. And he said a really interesting thing. He said in about three months' time, you're not even going to remember this mistake. He said, you might remember the fact that you made one, but you're going to learn on it and you're going to move to the next level. And it's interesting. It sounds like it's such a simple conversation. But in that moment, the impact he had on me was amazing. And that was over 30 years ago, and I actually still remember that conversation because he took the time to connect with me, and the impact that he had on shaping me as a kind of a, a young executive was, was pretty amazing. And I think that's what we got to get leaders to do. they got to hack their approach, change their mindset, and also make sure that they're impacting people to turn their people on, not turn their people off. Well, that's interesting to me because a lot of managers, if there's a mistake, will throw the employee under the bus. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, and I think that's the typical knee-jerk reaction. It, it's interesting. My first business that I had in Australia was a conference team-building business. And um, this was over 25 years ago. So one of the things I didn't want to do when I started my first business is I didn't want to have, uh, you know, go into debt and borrow a whole bunch of money so we could hire all these staff. So we had to think really creatively. And one of the things that we did um, in Sydney, where I live, there are resorts conference centers um, about two and a half, three hours north, west, and south of Sydney. So one of our strategies was, all right, let's get a relationship with these resorts, let's be their partner, and let's give them something that they can offer to get conferences to come back. And this is in the days of the outdoor team building. So, Peter, if you remember those, that's, you know, in the, in the 90s, the outdoor team building activities with trust falls and all of that. 
And, and one of the interesting things that we did is we took over a Crown Plaza uh, up in Terrigal, and one of the things that happened in the kind of acquiring of this, this location is they essentially said, well, we've got a staff member that does some Beach Olympics and things. We want her to work for you. And we said, all right, that's great. Um, she came on as us, and the very first big program we had up there, me and my business partner went up, and they were doing this big Beach Olympics. There were about 450 people there. It was a massive kind of conference team-building activity. And we had to go inside because the group was late and everything else. And we were inside and fish, finishing up and afterwards went back up to pack up all the equipment. And somebody stole the Beach Olympics volleyball net. And it was really fascinating because my business partner was a bit old school. And we'd only been in business, you know, really less than six months. And he was furious. And he said, we're going to dock her pay. We're going to take it out of her pay because this is her responsibility. It's her fault. We shouldn't have to pay for it. And it was interesting because I was thinking about it going, well, it was a massive program. It was a huge success. The client loved it. And, yeah, there was a mistake on the operations. Um, but if we dock or pay, what message is that going to send? And we had this massive argument. I remember it. And it went on for about an hour about are we going to dock or pay or are we aren't. And, you know, and essentially I ended up winning out because I said I will pay for it out of my salary, which wasn't very much at the time, because I'm going, I'm afraid of what message that will send to our staff. And I think that's what we need to be aware of. When we dock people and we actually crucify people because they make a mistake, what it does is it makes it go underground. People will actually hide their mistakes, and then we won't know what they're not doing well until it's too late. Amen to that. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Scott Stein. Scott is author of a new book. That new book, Leadership Hacks, Clever Shortcuts to Boost Your Impact and Results. We'll be right back, Scott, after these messages. And we're back, and we're talking about leadership hacks and a whole lot more with author Scott Stein, leadership expert, management consultant, author of the new book, Leadership Hacks, and a whole lot more. Good morning, leaders. Good morning again, Scott. Um, No worries, Peter. Good morning. Okay. Um. We use the term hacks, and a hack, H-A-C-K, um, tends to be used in terms of computers. How are you using the word? Yeah, um, essentially, if you think about it, and it and the word hacker initially did come from really the IT and computers, and, and initially it was you know kind of the computer geniuses that would find a new way to do things. And initially it was kind of negative, but it's kind of turned. The, the term hack is now kind of seen as something that is, uh, a shortcut, something that's not commonly known, simplified steps or a fast-track process. And, and even if you think about it with Facebook, um, even before Facebook floated with their IPO, um, uh, essentially Mark Zuckerberg had a manifesto that he put out called the Hacker Way. And, you know, and he essentially said, we need to actually continually test boundaries. And in fact, today they still run an annual hacking competition. And the hacking competition is designed to kind of break the old ways of doing things and see if there are a better, faster way to make things happen. And I think that's where I think of leadership hacks, where people are looking for strategies, fast-track things that they can use so they can lead faster, so they can get through their day quicker, and so they can mobilize their people easier as well. And I think that's where um, I started thinking about the leadership hacks and how that can, that can work. Now, you identify... 
um, a group of obstacles or distractions that get in the way of using these hacks? What are they? Yeah, what I what I started uh, noticing when I was doing the research is there were there were some things that stopped leaders from kind of being as effective or efficient as they could, you know. And 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 one of the biggest ones that I noticed was lack of energy. Um, and when people are running as fast as they are now, um, it's actually hard for them to recharge, you know. And and when they're burning the candle at both ends, um, it, it, you know, it just doesn't give them a chance to top up their battery, so to speak. And that's one of the biggest distractions that I found. When people are exhausted, it's hard for them to actually be clear in how they think, be strategic, and make things happen. Um, I know that uh, I was working with one CEO, and um, he hadn't slept in his bed in over 55 days in a row, <laughs> right? 55 days. You know, he'd been around the world. He'd been doing a whole bunch of things. And when I checked in with him, you know, I, I said, how are you feeling right now? And he just said, I'm exhausted. He said it's not just physical exhaustion, it's actually mental exhaustion. And, and what I'm finding, because our brains are so switched on all the times, we're starting to get mentally exhausted, which means it's actually kind of slowing our energy down, slowing our thought process down as well. So the first distraction is really the lack of energy, and we don't have that spring back that we used to. Well, but even with that, there's the distractions and the, the energy of vampires, if you will, of um, work. But there's the energy vampires of life. I mean, you, you may have a spouse, you may have children, you may have a leaky roof, you may have a boss breathing down your neck, you may have a health problem. All these things suck the energy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think what, what people need to do is they need to actually take time out to recharge. They, they've got to take a little bit of time so they can get their spring back. Um, it's interesting. You might, have, you might have picked up by the bit of an accent. Um, so I've, I've, I've lived in Australia for, geez, 23 years and um, traveled the world and things like that. I actually grew up in America, grew up in Michigan. I spent some time in Pennsylvania as well and Philadelphia as well, beautiful place. And um, the interesting thing that I noticed when I first came to Australia, and I still notice this, is one of the things that the Australians have as a mindset is to work hard but to play hard. And when they play hard, they use that as a way to recharge. What I've noticed in the American culture, it's work hard, but I'm noticing people are forgetting to play hard. They're forgetting to take that time out so they can relax. I've got a friend of mine that's in one of the, the C-levels in one of the uh, Fortune 500 companies over there, and, and he can't take a day. He can't take a week off. You know, I said, when was the last time you took some holidays, took vacation time to spend some time with your family? And it was over three years ago, you know, and it, it's almost like he's on the constant treadmill and he can't take a break, which to me in itself is not a good thing, not healthy for their relationships, not healthy for the spouse, not happy, healthy for the family, but it's also not healthy from a business perspective because without that time to take a break, the energy just gets a little bit stale. Does that explain why some businesses and corporations make you take your vacation? Yeah, and I think, I think that's actually quite a strong thing to do. So they go, we need you to go. Um, I remember I had, a, I had a boss who did that. I had been working flat out. I was insane. I was coming in. And, and he said, no, you, you need to take a break. And I said, well, there's too much work. I can't afford to. And, and it was interesting because he put it back on me. He said, well, if that's the case, you're not being a very good manager. How come you're not developing people to step up so you can take a break? And it was kind of a smack in the forehead. But it, he, was actually, he was actually spot on. What he was saying was absolutely true. I hadn't been getting my staff developed 
so I could actually hand things off. And I think that's the thing that happens for a lot of people. One of the other distractions I find, found was time fillers or the biological need to be busy. It's almost like we just need to be busy doing something. You know, I call it the busy, the busy syndrome. You know, and, and I remember when I was a kid, uh, my parents had a, uh, you know, they, before they passed away, they had three things they wanted to accomplish. It was kind of like the early bucket list. You know, they wanted to pay off their house, and they wanted to see me get married, and they wanted to have an overseas trip, you know, which is pretty good. I was in a bookstore not too long ago, and I found on the bookshelf the 100 things you have to do before you die on your bucket list. And it's interesting because what that means is, well, nobody's satisfied anymore. We just got to stay busy all the time. It's almost like we have this biological be need just to have time fillers, you know, and, and that's a massive distraction. And that gets in the way of people actually recharging their batteries as well. Okay. Um, other obstacles you want to tell us about? Yeah, I think one of them is about the mindset. And this is for leaders about self-doubt. You know, a distraction can be uh, them doubting themselves, doubting their capabilities. Um, what I've found, the higher I work in organizations, um, the less they know, which is kind of opposite of what you expect. I remember a CEO, massive situation, and it was, you know, a couple of years after this massive thing when they're all the papers and everything else. And I said, how did you guys, how did you guys actually navigate through that? You know, what was your strategy? What was your plan? He said, well, to be honest, we didn't have one at the beginning. He said, we weren't sure. There was new competitors in the market. There was new technology in the market. And we completely got broadsided. We never saw it coming. You know, and I think that's the thing that we need to be aware of is a lot of leaders don't know everything. They're learning as fast as everybody else. And I think the important thing from a distraction perspective is not letting self-doubt start kind of creeping up and getting in and kind of clouding your judgment and clouding what you do and what your capabilities are. Okay, you talk about something called an activity map. What's that? Yeah, I think one of the things that I looked at is what people can do to kind of hack their activity is, is take a look at what are you actually doing. You know, and the way to look at it is what's your current activity? And one thing that I've found that's very useful for people is to map it on paper and just do a, a little bit of a mind map. So you take a clean sheet of paper or you can do it on a tablet if you'd like. And in the center, just do current activity. And what you do is you draw some lines out from that circle, and you just capture where has your activity and focus been for the last couple of weeks. And then once you actually map out, so you might have 10 different areas where you've mapped out where I've been doing this. I've been doing sales calls. I've been having meetings. You know, I've been researching and whatever else. And then actually look at the percentage of time. What percentage of time are you spending in each of those areas? And this is usually the hard thing because most of us are unconscious to what we're doing with our time. But if you start mapping out the percentage of time, you can actually get a little bit of a feel for, well, where am I spending my time? And then the next step is find a clean sheet of paper and then actually map out what should you be doing? What's the activity I ideally would be focusing on? Map that out, do the percentage of time, and then put those two maps side by side and start looking at what am I spending too much time on or what am I not spending time on that I need to to be more effective. And I think that's one of the massive things that people can do. Once they start seeing what they're doing and what they're not doing and where they're wasting their time, that can very quickly identify some easy things you can do 
to be more effective. Okay. Um, what about technology? Does it help or hurt? Yeah, I, I think um, it depends, which is always a terrible answer, but it really does. I think technology is amazing. I'm a tech person. I love all my gadgets and everything else. However, what I find is a lot of people don't know how to manage it. So what that means is technology is starting to take over for us. You know, it was interesting. Uh, I've got a, uh, three kids, and I was talking to my youngest one. He's only 12, and it was about phone numbers, right? And he's remembering or memorizing our phone numbers, which is great. But it's interesting. My eldest daughter, she's only had her cell phone or her mobile phone for a number of years, and I just realized I haven't memorized her phone number. And the reason why is I just put it into the phone, put her name down, and I just touch on the phone to call her. But it made me start thinking, you know, when we grew up, we wouldn't be able to memorize all this information. And now technology can make it easier for us not to have to memorize all of that. But at the same time, I think sometimes that means we get a little bit mentally lazy because we are taking it for granted. But I think one of the biggest things that technology is doing, getting to your point, is it's overwhelming us. Because it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, we're not shutting it off. Um, I was at dinner on the weekend with the family, and I looked over, and there was another family, you know, a mom and a dad and two of their kids. Uh, one was probably eight. One was probably 12. And all four of them were on devices, you know. So rather than having a conversation over dinner, they were all on their screen, you know. And I think that, to me, is probably not a good thing, you know, because I'm going, what what's happening to the conversations we used to have? Well, we just touch base with people as human beings or as a family. Um, and I think sometimes technology is just getting a little bit out of control. Well, it brings us so, many, so much information, though. Um, you can open up an email, for example, and find a gazillion messages that you need to deal with. And that's an energy sucker. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's great. I think what we need to do is we need to control it. And I think that's the challenge, you know. When you are, you know that you're not controlling it. When you get home and you glance at your phone on the weekend and the kids go, well, come on, can you do something with me? You know, or are, you, are you checking your email again, Dad? You know, I, I think there are times when we, we need to use technology to our advantage, and I think there's times when we've got to kind of turn, to turn that technology off, put it away, and get it out of our mind so it doesn't distract us from what's important. Who should read the book? Yeah, I think the book is designed for um, anybody that actually wants to get more things done in less time, specifically if they're a leader. So if you want to know some strategies of how can you hack your email so you can get through it quicker, and how can you send an email that people respond to, there's a hack in the book for that. Um, if you want to delegate, so you get people to do what you need them to do, but do it in a way that motivates them, not turns them off, uh, there's a delegation hack that shows you how to do that. So some anybody that actually has staff reporting to them, well, you need to mobilize them and get them to take action, especially when they're overwhelmed. There's some great strategies in the book for you there. I think it's also a, quite a good book for somebody who might be a younger up-and-coming leader, somebody that does want to go into a management or leadership role and is looking for, well, what are some of the shortcuts that I can use to be more effective in a shorter amount of time? Well, that's interesting to me because so many times, as you said earlier, we promote people just based on length of service. And it's yeah. much more than that. And 
it sounds like um, Leadership Hacks is a good pre-service course, a good thing to yeah, read. Yeah. Yeah, it is actually. Um, and, well, it's interesting because I've got a number of um, CEOs that have read it as well, and they've wanted to put their middle-level managers and some of their SLP managers through it because they're going, you know what? Um, uh, you know, in fact, Harvard Business Review did a study a couple of years ago, and the study showed that over 50% of companies were concerned about their manager's ability to delegate uh, because they found that they just weren't. Um, I, you know, so I think uh, this book actually gives some practical skills on how do you do that? What's a step-by-step process you can use to actually make it work first time? And you're listening to Conversation here on 94WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Scott Stein, leadership expert. We'll be back in just a bit to WIP time, 640. And we're back and into the home stretch with author Scott Stein, leadership expert, author of the new book, Management Hacks. Scott, time is an enemy for so many managers, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, and in fact, that's the big dilemma that I kind of look at is, is uh, for every leader, there's, there's just not enough time to get everything done that's on their plate. So time is always kind of a constant, and it's always against them. So what do you advise them to do? I, th- I think they actually have to find what are some hacks or shortcuts that they can use so they can get more done in less time. You know, and, and I think finding some of the hacks that they can use will actually get them on the front foot. You know, I'll give you an example. One of the things I talk about in the book is around communication um, and sending emails. You know, so we've got so many emails in our inbox, but what I'm finding is people aren't managing their time to check their emails. So they're constantly checking it, which means they're not focusing on other things where they need to turn off the notifications, only check your emails when you want to check it rather than just going back and kind of constantly looking at it, which means your brain's just going all over the place. Um, The other thing that I find is, you know, sending emails that can actually get some results. You know, most people send emails, and and if you look at Radikai, started looking at the number of emails we're getting, it's about 150 a year, and they say it's going to go up. You know, every year it goes up by 10 to 20%, depending on which survey that you're looking at, and even getting people to respond to your emails can actually be a trick, and that's going to suck your time. So anything that you can use to find a way to kind of get people to respond and take action is going to save you time. Like one of the hacks that I found that a lot of leaders use to kind of hack the way they send their email is they actually do a simple thing is let people know at the very beginning of the email what outcomes they're looking for. So rather than just typing an email and helping having people read through it and wonder what you want them to do, there's actually five specific outcomes that you have from any email. Uh, One is FYI, you just want them to be aware of something. One is you need to gather information for them and have them share it. Uh, A third one is about you need a decision, you need them to make a decision. The fourth one is you need to take a specific action. Or the fifth one is we need to meet to discuss this because it's too big to put in an email. So one of the things that could save you some time is if you put at the very beginning of the email which of those five outcomes you're looking for. So when people are reading it, they know exactly what they need to do in the response. And I think little things like that, small little hacks that people can use, are going to actually save them some time. Absolutely. Do you have a website, Scott? Yeah, the website is www.scottstein, which is S-T-E-I-N, dot com. www.scottstein.com. Thank you, Scott Stein. Yep. 
It's been instructive, to say the least. All right. Thank you very much, Peter. Enjoy your day. You too. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon, and from leadership to something very different. I'm pleased to welcome here for Conversation, yes, Jennifer Ann Moses, her new book, The Book of Joshua. Good morning, Jennifer Ann Moses. Good morning. Thank you for joining us this morning. You're welcome. Um, why'd you write this book? Oh, gosh. <laughs> the, that's the question um, every author dreads. Um, you know, the, the book, I actually started writing the book years ago um, the, the, and then rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it over, I'm going to say, 10 years until I got the story right. But it was the, the germ of the book um, comes from real life. When I was um, 16, I, I had a summer romance with um, a lovely, sweet young man. He was my first boyfriend um, named Danny. Um, and um, over the years, uh, then we went to college, and during our college years, we established a friendship. And during during those same college years, Danny, the the real human being, became increasingly agitated and depressed, um, and and eventually he had a psychotic break, um, and he stabbed his own eye out mm. at a YMCA in New York City. Um, we continued to be friends for a few more years, um, and he he in his thirties uh, this wonderful young man who had been a youngful, wonderful, very gifted, very handsome, beloved, athletic, talented, you name it, uh, young man, um, killed himself. He was, he just couldn't, he, he was just tormented by, by mental illness. And this story just, his story haunted me all my adult life. And it was the, the germ um, it was just the germs, just the seed of the idea that had been in me for decades before I, I, I finally started writing um, about a Danny-like figure. Jo- Joshua is, is not really based on Danny, but um, the seed of Joshua came from my relationship with, with, the real, with the real Danny. And it was just something that had haunted me, this Danny story, how somebody so who was so slated for, not just for an adult, a a satisfying adult life, an adult adult life, but who was like sort of almost slated for glory, um, was, you know, was destroyed by this disease. And and that really was the emotional start uh, of the story for me. Briefly, the story of Joshua. Please, the book of Joshua. Oh, the the plot. What yes. happens? Yes. So yes. in in the in the in the novel that I wrote versus um, the the real story, um, Joshua uh, is a young man, uh, high school towards the end of high school, and he wakes up uh, in a hospital room. He comes to consciousness. Um, he does not know where he is. He does not know how he got there. He does not know who the woman sitting by his bed is who's, who's crying with relief. Um, he thinks he, she's his chemistry teacher, and there had been an accident in the lab. That's what his first thought is. Um, and he does not know what the big 
bandages over his face. It's so he the next scene he learns the bandages there be where his eye had been. He's lost his eye. He doesn't know what happened to him. And he doesn't know the next thing he asks is where's Sophie? Sophie is his girlfriend, his great, great love of his young life, who from whom he's with whom he's inseparable. And um as he comes to, he realizes he's lost his eye and he's lost his girlfriend. He doesn't know what happened to her. And nobody in his family will tell him what happened. They just keep telling him they don't know what happened to Sophie, only that she's fine, don't worry. And they don't know what's happened to his eye. Thank God somebody called the emergency services and saved his life. And so the rest of the book is about his um, coming to understand he has to re- return to high school. He should have graduated, but he was too busy having psychotic episodes, so he didn't finish his senior year. He has to go back for a second senior year of high school, which if you remember your own teenage years, that alone <laughs> is like the end of the world. Um, and now he's in his his he's in classes with his own little brother and his little brother's gang and he's humiliated and he only has one eye and he doesn't know know what happened to Sophie and on top of everything else he'd been a long distance runner and now he's fat from all the meds and he doesn't he's completely unmoored and depressed and does not know his own history he doesn't know what he's done he doesn't know who he is he's flattened he's absolutely flattened and so as the book uh, unfolds he he meets a, a new girl who's an outcast who's who's sort of mysterious also um as and they kind of start as um enemies they don't want anything to do with each other they gradually become the closest of friends and through that friendship and through the love that those two established uh, her name is Elizabeth. Um, he comes to understand, with her help, he comes to understand what happened, what he himself did, what he himself went through. So that's you know I don't want to give I don't want to give it away, but that's that's the that's the book that's the the the, the germ that's the story. You did very well, thank you. Um, <laughs> It's a scary story because while it's fiction, it's yeah. a story of a whole lot of teenagers. Teenagers, young adults, I mean, kids maybe 16, 17, 22, 23. Right. Have a lot of mental health problems, don't they? Or can. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm a writer. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a social scientist. I, I think what you're referring to is what we all know about from reading the news and having eyes and ears, which is... Right, you know, well, you you mentioned the the school shootings, which of course are just beyond appalling, and they started well beyond my own high school years. Um, but sure, I mean, there's people have serious serious mental health issues, and probably always have. I mean, I, I don't mean to make light of something as appalling my god as, as the school shootings that's uh, i can't even imagine um being a parent of, of one of those children 
However, being an adolescent is in its it, being in in high school in its own way is just you're sort of kind of crazy anyway. I mean, normally crazy, right? And mm-hmm. being, being in those years, it's they're they're very rich, but they're very challenging. I don't know how old you are, and I don't want to say <laughs> on the radio how old I am, but I'm about to give it away because. Um, Last summer, I went to my 40th high school reunion in Virginia, in northern Virginia, in the suburbs, and I went to a big public high school. There were over 500 kids in my class. I was not popular. I couldn't wait to get out of there and never go back. Um, I I did get a good education. I knew that even at the time. I was very grateful um, to the school, to my teachers, to the, to, to, to the riches of, of the educational environment there. Um, and I just, I was leaving. I was never going back because I was so miserable. And it, I was just miserable in high school. I was just, every day was like walking the gap, you know, just, just walking the line for me. It was a It was an emotionally harrowing experience for me. And it wasn't even because kids were particularly mean at my high school. They were just kids, you know. They were the cliques, and I'm sure there were some mean kids, and there were kids who were beginning, you know, at the beginning of what became lifelong uh, drug abuse, which we find out about four years later, and um, kids at the beginning of of all kinds of problems. Um, but uh, those years, those high school years are very are very challenging even for kids with normal uh, neurology, which I had. Um, I, I, my own three children are in their 20s, so I'm not that far removed from being the parent of those kids. Uh, but, but sure, there's, there's an e- enormous amount of, uh, of illness um, that uh, is sort of biological illness stuff that just happens, and then there's the the illness of of uh, American society, um, which is which is a whole nother realm of of terrifying right now. Um, but again, I'm I'm not a psychiatrist or a social scientist of any kind. I'm just you know I'm just a person who can't stop writing. How do you research a book like this, though, to get the details right? Well, I didn't research it. I, there was no research to be done other than a, around the mention of the medical treatment, uh, uh, the therapeutic treatment that Joshua receives. I needed to get the meds right, and I did that on the Internet um, just to see what the brand names were of, of, of the meds. But it, this story I wrote about the book of Joshua is really the story of a human being. It's not... A human being is trying, who was who very sick, and he's trying to figure out his own, his own self, his own journey, um, and it's so it's about him and his own deep desire to to pull out of his depression, um, find out what happened to Sophie, his girlfriend. Um, figure out figure out who he is, which is what teenagers do anyway. He has the extra terrible burden of having had a, a true uh, psychotic crisis. Um, so, so that that's the story of, of his trajectory and of his relationships with his with his 
great new pal Elizabeth and with his mother and father and and his brother which which is what teenagers all teenagers their their lives are what their what their relationships are with their families whatever that family might be composed of and with their friends so I didn't have to do research per se I had to dig deep down deep 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 down into my guts to write a true story about real human beings so that that's a different process I think than the one you know you you might have been pointing to yeah it really though is a cautionary tale because you never know what's going on inside the head of that golden child who might be in that kid's high school class well that's right that's absolutely right and um I like, you know, now that I've reached a certain age, I I've hope I've become wiser and more self-aware than I was when I was 16. Um, I know when I was in high school, I, I considered myself, um, uh, you know, not first rate. I'll just put it that way. I considered myself a very second rate person, and I wondered what the secret of this one's glow and that one's popularity, and they're so happy, and maybe if I wear a purse like this girl, I mean, I used to have these these thoughts, like if I had that sweater or those shoes or cross my legs a certain way, the way this girl does it, maybe I too will will reach the golden ring. And, and of course I go, which we all know as we get older isn't true for anyone, but when I went to my high school reunion, the typical thing happened. I was actually talking to a woman um, who I'd gone to school with who had always struck me as sort of that golden girl and, and was still a very beautiful, very beautiful woman um, and seemed very self-possessed. And, you know, she she had, <laughs> she just smiled and laughed and she said, you know, I was a teenager too, right? And she she hadn't felt, she hadn't felt about herself as good as she looked in high school. Um, and I had the experience, too, at the reunion. People came up to me saying, oh, Jennifer, I remember when you did this. You were so wonderful. You were so cool. You were so this and that. I was like, I was. Right? I am so hot. I remember it. So, yeah, I mean, kids um, kids are very self-conscious. And they're, teenagers are interesting to write about because they, they're adults. You know, they're just adults. They, they have adult uh, brains to the large, you know, to a large extent. They have adult desires to a large extent. What they don't have is experience. They don't have years behind them. Um, so they have access to as much uh, intellectual depth and sophistication um, as somebody with, with many more decades. They, they just, they don't have the life experience, so they're searching. Um, so I, it, it, they're, they're, they're interesting little people, high school students. I understand why I've got a couple of friends who teach in, in a high school, and they, it's, it's endlessly kind of wonderful for my friends because they love working with this, this age group that's so difficult um, and challenging and yet you know, so interesting and moving. Teenagers are moving. They, they're like, they, you just watch them, and they're emotionally, they touch you. You know, because they're still, they're forming themselves. They don't have the hard shell. They ha- they haven't formed their personas yet. They're kind of in chrysalis. It seems to me, and I'd be interested if this was your intention, that your book, the Book of Joshua, has the ability to start provoking a conversation for, in, with those who read it 
about mental health in adolescents? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd be nice if, if it if it did, um, because those conversations need need to be had. I know that um, from my own personal experience, again, with my friend Danny, may, may he rest in peace, uh, part of the real problem that his parents, who were educated um, and well off, they had all the resources that, that one could have at the time, um, and they were very loving, the challenge they had over and over again is they didn't know what the signs were of, of a coming psychotic break. And he showed all of them. He was Danny, as far as I know, the real Danny, had a sort of a classic trajectory. He was exactly that age. It started when he was started college when he was a freshman. He went to Princeton. He this was no dummy either, this this young man. Um uh when he was a freshman in, in Princeton, his his uh, the signs of his coming psychosis were already um, quite front and center. He was paranoid, and he wanted to take he wanted to fix the world. He wanted to take over, somehow fix the sufferings of the world. He was feeling the sufferings and the pain of of this the entire world. He sort of became a, a bit of a Jesus figure. Um, Jewish Danny, the real Danny, as my character Joshua, um, the real Danny was Jewish, and my character Joshua is Jewish, uh, but they both have this kind of wanting to take over the sufferings of the world, make a sacrifice for the sufferings of the world, and and these I I I've learned in my adult years that some of these um, emotional patterns. Are, are signs of, of, a, of, a, of a blooming psychosis. Um, and um, you know, Danny was schizophrenic. I mean, that, that's a serious, serious illness. It's, I, I don't know what it is. Your brain goes cuckoo. It's not... Um, I, I almost think of it as, you know, if you have a heart attack, you're in good health, you take care of yourself, you run, you eat, you know, you're vegan, whatever, and you still have a heart attack... When you're 40, well, your your organ, your heart, has you know is diseased, um, despite your best efforts, and and has an attack and hurts you. And I think of psychosis is the same way. It's not your fault, you know. It's not an error in attitude. Um, it's the brain is 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 is. An organ of such complexity is beyond reckoning. Um, I heard somebody compare the brain to the universe, that it's actually the most complex object in the entire universe, and maybe as complex as the universe um, itself. So stuff goes wrong there. But again, I'm not speaking as a scientist. Um, I'm speaking as a person who, like you, reads, <laughs> reads. Well, but that's an important message you're giving us, and maybe a message you can give us in a way that scientists can't. So I'd like to say thank you, Jennifer Ann Moses. Thank her you. Her new book. Do you, have a, do you have a website, Jennifer? I do. It's jenniferannmosesarts.com. Jenniferannmosesarts.com. And one more time, Jennifer, the title of the book. The Book of Joshua. The Book of Joshua. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you. And you're listening to WIP.
94WIP conversation. Stay tuned for WIP Sunday. If you can't, nothing left to say, but see you soon. As we ease on into WIP Sunday here on 94WIP All Sports Radio, my name's Peter Solomon, and we've got a busy WIP Sunday, so we're going to get right to it. My first guest this morning, James Anderson, is author of a new murder mystery now out in paperback, but it's a murder mystery that could have come straight from the headlines. That new mystery, Lullaby Lullaby Road. Good morning, James Anderson. Hey, good morning, Peter. How are you doing, man? I'm fine. All right, James, what was the genesis of this book? How'd you get the idea? Well, you know what? It's about children at risk, and uh, I was one of them at one time in my life. And uh, so I think it, it, it it came from that. You know, there's a there's a lot of stuff out there right now uh, about what we do or don't do or can't do or whatever these huge issues that involve children, and um, you know, I keep my story simple, close to the heart, because it's one thing to you know read cable news or have an opinion, but when it comes right down to it, um, what are you going to do? And um, my books are set in the uh, Utah desert. So there isn't anything else out there, and character is all about what you do when no one's looking. An important issue right there. Um, Why, though, the Utah desert? You know what? There's something really special about the desert. Um, You know, I love the the way the the light comes off the, uh, the mesas and the colors. And then there's just the whole idea that um, we're connected. We're all connected in one way or another. And when you're writing a small story, Flannery O'Connor once said that you can't write a large story if you can't tell a small one. And so I, I keep it close to the vest. And out in the desert, there are very few resources and very few people. And um, it's sort of high relief. Everything that really matters, water and and connections and and depending upon one another in one way or another that then you can really see all of that and uh you know that's that's the reason one of the reasons why it's set in the desert that and i just like the desert you know mm-hmm. why not you're in charge <laughs> oh yeah would we like to think so huh well that's an interesting question do you create the character's world or do the characters create your world their world both both you know i think every author will tell you once you once you get to a certain point when you're writing a novel or a story or or whatever you set up you start out and you sort of set up uh rules the person is acts this way and and uh, uh and talks a certain way thinks a certain way and um as you as you get into it um how that person re- reacts, a protagonist reacts in a, in a situation or what they say um, is part of their personality. So those rules kind of get set up and um, not that there aren't surprises because boy, there are, I mean, Hey, if you don't like surprises, you're never going to like people. <laughs> um, so, uh, so that's, it, it, it gets, it gets into following the rules that you set up uh, for your, for your story. All right. Tell us the story then without giving away too much. Uh, well, 
Ben Jones is a uh, uh, an orphan. Uh, as far as he knows, his mother was a Jewish social worker, and his uh, father was a Native American on the Warm Springs Reservation. And, and uh, anyhow, he's um, he's abandoned at birth at the little clinic on the on the reservation. And um, uh, by the time he's five or so, six. Uh, he's then adopted by a Mormon couple, an older childless, childless um, Mormon couple in uh, Price, Utah, and so he grows up in the desert and and becomes uh, uh, a truck driver. He delivers uh, necessities. Uh, it's just him in the truck to uh, oddballs and eccentrics and and sometimes fugitives. Uh, what we call desert rats out in the that live way out in the desert, and uh, he drives 100 miles out to this little town, uh, dying coal mining town of Rock Muse, and then 100 miles back. And uh, stuff happens. Stuff happens, you know. Uh, and in this in this book, um, somebody abandons a, um, a little child, a small child, at a seedy truck stop uh, early in the morning. And it's winter, and it's snowing, and icy, and so on. And he feels like he has no other choice but to take the child with him. There's a note saying, you know, take care of my child. And so off he goes into the desert uh, with this little child. And, of course, there's a lot more to that child. So he ends up taking a, a much bigger risk than, than he imagined. I note something that is like a digression, but I think an important one. You're a graduate of Reed College, and um, I'm a Reed parent, so I think that's great <laughs> education. <laughs> well, you know, the great thing about Reed is, you know, uh, I was, you know, I was there in the '70s, and um, there's a, it's a small enough thing. I mean, my my friends who were in, you know. Uh, uh, chemistry or physics or philosophy um, were friends with people who were in the literature department or, you know, there was a lot of uh, uh, cross-pollinization. So there wasn't that sort of really tight compartmentalization that you have in, in bigger universities where people tend to know just the people in their department. Uh, and uh, it's been, it, it was, it was great for me because I'm just one of those people that's interested in, in everything and including, uh, you know, I had friends in economics and, and uh, pre-med and so on. So it was a lot of fun. Good school too. Little, little known, but very good and very um, academically oriented. Um, well, you know, the, the thing about Reed is, is at least when I was there, the library is open 24 seven. Right. Mm -hmm. And at three o'clock in the morning, the library is packed, <laughs> <So>. <laughs> which is unusual for many colleges. Yeah. Yeah. And as far as I know, most people that were there were actually sober. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> uh, that's another discussion. All right. Yeah, I want sure to James Anderson, I have to take a break, run a few commercials. So stay with me, though, because we're not done yet. And you're listening. All to right. You're listening to WIP Sunday. My guest this morning, James Anderson, author of the new murder mystery out in paperback, Lullaby Road. We'll be back in just a bit. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, James Anderson, his new mystery, Lullaby Road. James, um, 
Why did you choose to do it as a mystery, though? Why did I choose to, to write, write a mystery? Yeah, yeah. And you why not this, this issue of children in danger? Why did you make it a mystery? You know what? I, uh, William Faulkner, great American writer, uh, said everything is a mystery. You know, and I don't really sit down to write a mystery. I sit down to write the best novel I can. And, uh, you know, we're, we're all mysterious. You know, uh, the people that we think we've known for 40 years will surprise us. And uh, so everything is a mystery to me. And I, I like the idea of exploring uh, people, characters. I mean, you know, that's one of the things that gets said a lot about my books is, is that the characters are, are, are so real and they, they're, they're different. They're not, you know, they're not one dimensional. Um, as I said, they, they will surprise you. Uh, as we surprise ourselves every day, I'm sure with you as well, Peter. You you think of yourself as doing one thing, and uh, then all of a sudden you do another. So, does that answer your question, man? I think so. I think so. Um, we also like mysteries, things with a hook like that. It appeals to us, doesn't it? I I think I think it does. You know, I. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's because I think like a writer or whatever. But um, I'm I'm constantly fascinated by uh, um, by people um, and their interactions with one another. And um, you know, in a book, in a mystery, you kind of get to unravel that. I mean, um, Ben Jones, who is the protagonist, you know, he's a truck driver and he spends a lot of time, you know, driving and thinking about the people that that he serves out in the desert and uh you know he he tries his his motto is leave the mysteries alone but of course the mysteries find him and uh i I think it's just it's it's fun to be able to you know read things that eventually kind of make sense you know once you get all the information uh and that's that's what happens in a mystery uh things happen and and little by little, you discover why they happened. Uh, they don't always make sense in a way that makes us comfortable, but uh, they they do. And, the, and I remember in the first book, you know, Ben basically says, you know, most people will say, well, I would never commit a murder. And yet people do. Uh, and uh, that's one of that's one of those surprises as if. They just tripped one day and accidentally committed a murder. You know, it doesn't doesn't really happen like that. So, well, two things. One is, I think, all of us, given the right circumstances, could, could commit a murder. But again, that's yep. another discussion. And two, um, Ben doesn't think himself think of himself as a hero, but he does heroic things, doesn't he? Well, you know, that's one of the things. I mean, you know, my my first novel was rejected by everybody and agents and. And, and and so on. And one of the things that I would occasionally hear uh, is, well, you know, what's your character's superpower, right? Because, you know, in in fiction, in movies, and so on, uh, usually they, they've got, you know, like your uh, former CIA agent, CIA uh, or NSA transsexual nun, uh, you know, who speaks 18 languages and, and so on. Uh, and Ben's superpower, I had to think about this, but his superpower is 
He's just an average guy trying to do the best he can. And in my book, you get up every morning, you put your boots to the floor, and you do the job. And you do it without a parade and without any attaboys and and uh, no medals and your wall does your name doesn't go on the wall at Langley. Uh, you just do the work every day, usually for small pay. And in my book, uh, that's a hero. Absolutely. Um, and you mentioned this is your second book with Ben Jones. Are there going to be more? Well, I hope so. You know, the way it works in publishing is is that if if you do something that's uh, that reaches some level of success, then uh, then they want you to do another one. I'd like for there to be another one, and you know, the response has been uh, terrific. You know, I was just thrilled. Uh, yeah, I think it was Friday. You know, the New York Times uh, made Lullaby Road one of their staff picks in uh, paperback. And so I've been, you know, really fortunate. People really like, seem to like um, being in a part of the world out in the desert uh, that is different from what they know. Um, and so when you go into one of my books, uh, you enter another world. Uh, you know, it's Ben's world, desert world, oddballs, fugitives, uh, and... Uh, you know, different geology and weather and, and so on. So I think that that's a, you know, that's a plus. So I'd like for there to be a third book, but Hey, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know. I, I hope for the best. One of the things that I always find intriguing about um, novels that we talk about on the show is the liner notes on the cover. And there's, uh-huh. and there's one liner note that um, got me. This guy, oh. this guy writes like the offspring of a devil who married an angel. <laughs> what do you think about that? Tom Janowitz, I you know, I love that I love that woman as a as a person and as a writer. I don't I don't know if you're familiar with uh uh her work, but uh you know it's it's true because you know Ben is an average guy. Uh and he's a guy. Uh he's got his own demons. Um he's he's like most of us. Every day we try to do the right thing. And some days it's one step forward, two steps back. You know, we're trying. We're trying. We aspire. Uh, and uh, Ben has a um, a side to him that uh, at one point, for instance, there's a there's an accident, and the guy has a little boy with him, and and uh, Ben has told this guy because the crosswinds in the desert are terrible and so on. But anyhow, there's a terrible accident, and. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, ben gets to the guy, and the guy's all broken up, and, and Ben's tried to warn this guy, and this guy's just a, you know, a-hole. And, uh, but he's laying there, in the, and he asks about his son. Uh, and Ben says, well, you know, as soon as I get a trash bag, I'll, uh, I'll bring him to you, mm. you know. Uh, so he's, you know, he can, he, can, he can be pretty raw sometimes, and, and, uh, and he regrets it. I mean, here's the guy's broken. He's dying. He wants to know what happened to his son. And, and, you know, so Ben, Ben is like all of us. I mean, he's, he's trying, he's trying. Uh, so, um, I guess, I guess that's, you know, that's a big part of it. You know, we're all trying and we, we make mistakes and we try to do better the next time. Which is more important to you though? Um, James Anderson, 
a good review or a good royalty check? <laughs> Can I have both? Um, you know, here's the thing. You you sit down, you do the very best work you can do. All of us are that way. Every morning when we show up to do our job, we, we want to do the best job we can. And uh, uh, sometimes you can do your very best job and still get laid off or get fired or or whatever. And, and sometimes we just don't have any control over that. So my feeling is, is that um, uh, nobody knows whether a book's going to sell or whether it's going to resonate with an audience and and you just don't know that so you just do the very best that you can and um, sometimes there's there's a royalty check and sometimes there isn't or usually the case is the royalty check is uh, uh, enough to take your mother out for lunch you know <laughs> <laughs> I mean if she doesn't eat too much uh, so um, I guess the my, my answer is um, if if people read the book uh, and and they really like it and it you know it does something for them it tells them a good story they learn something about somebody else uh, and themselves then if I had to choose I would rather have that okay and I guess finally you're going to be in the neighborhood aren't you on Tuesday oh, I I am so excited yeah I'm going to be in uh, Philadelphia and uh, you know and it, I've got friends there, and you know I love the city. In fact, I'm at an airport right now, getting ready to fly to Philadelphia, and um, I'm I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to be at uh, uh, in New Hope uh, at Farley's uh, bookstore, and I just you know I'm 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 looking forward to it. I've, this is this is that time um, where I'm really fortunate, where I get to go out and and uh, and meet people, and talk about not just my books, but talk about things in general and other people's books, what they're reading. And, and, uh, you know, it's the audience is almost, you know, around the country have almost uniformly been really wonderful to me. And, uh, so I enjoy those, those conversations and Farley's is a, is a great little, uh, independent bookstore. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And certainly a beautiful time to visit New Hope, Pennsylvania. And I'd like to say thank you to my guest this morning, James Anderson. It's been fun. His new book, Lullaby Road. Thank you, James. Thank you very much, Peter. You take care, man. You too. Bye-bye. And you're listening to WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. We'll be back in just a bit. And we're back, and it's WIP Sunday, and a chilly WIP Sunday it's going to be. But always good, hot conversation here on 94 WIP. And my final guest of the morning, Nathan Jamal. Another management expert, believe it or not, his new book, because he's this one, unlike the other one we interviewed this morning, this one is aimed at middle managers, those with people below and people above them. The new book, Serve Up, Coach Down, Mastering the Middle Management and Both Sides of Leadership. Good morning, Nathan Jamal. Good morning, Peter. How are you doing, sir? I'm fine. Um, Good. Why do middle managers need help? Say that, I'm sorry, say that again. Why do middle managers need help? All, all, all leaders need help, uh, Peter. I mean, the, the, the reason why we don't call it middle managers and we call it little leader in the middle is because 
no one wants to be called a middle manager. Ironically enough, 98% of all leaders are middle managers. And what I mean by that is it doesn't matter if you're called a sales manager or president or senior vice president or chief executive officer. If you have a boss, which is a board of directors, or you have and you have employees, you are a leader in the middle. And so almost every leader in business is a leader in the middle and it requires a difficult and different mindset than just pure leadership uh, mindset. And what would that mindset be? Well, so often if you read some of the old Green Myth uh, Servant Leadership books, it's that the, the mindset that we should serve our people. And, and as a father of a 22-year-old, a 16-year-old, 8-year-old, and a 6-year-old, serving our employees, if we did the same thing for our children, we have these things called entitled children. And what I talk about is if you really want to serve your employees, you should make them better. And so how do you how do you lead those? And then you could take down every aspect of leadership, whether it's communication, changing organization, whatever it may be. But how do you get those below you to follow? And then how do you also serve those who pay you, your leaders? How do you serve them to full alignment to, to be the one that everybody counts on? And so it's that so often in leadership, you got that leader in the middle who tends to protect their employees with the right intent. They want to be a great leader, but they tend to have they think they have to protect their employees from the bosses or big bad company. And we don't. The main thing as leader we must do is, is get alignment. We are the connection from the vision of those we follow to the execution of those we coach. And so it's that it's a it's not that people have wrong intents. It's that our actions don't match our intents. And whether it's serve up coach down on my previous book, Leadership Playbook, it's our job as a leader is to make our people better. And, and as I say, in organizations, we always want our leaders to coach our employees. Yet we very rarely ever teach our leaders how to be coaches. All right. Does that make sense? Yes. I've worked in organizations, primarily human services, where um, the middle manage the middle, the person in the middle, and I was one of yep. them. One of the philosophies that was prevalent was, "What our bosses don't know can't hurt us." That's right. What do you think it, about well, that? It, it, well, I, I think it's funny. We always have no issues thinking what our bosses don't know, but we really struggle with what we don't know, right? Give me an example. If our bosses give us a direction or an organization says, hey, we're going to do this, the first thing we think is, gosh, they don't have any idea what's really going on. They're so disconnected. They should ask my opinion. And really what we should be doing is maybe we don't know what's going on. So often, to your point, is we think that when the company makes a decision or our bosses say we're going to go a direction, we think if we don't agree, they're wrong. And really what we need to think is if we don't agree, right, and we like that boss before the decision was made, and we believed in the organization before the decision was made, we must assume it's not because they don't know what's going on. Maybe it's because we don't have the same vision they do. They have more access than we do, so we must assume that they're right. So often until our we, – we love our bosses and we love the organization until we don't agree with them anymore, and we assume they're wrong. And, and the book is about, listen, as a leader, I want my people to believe in me. I want my people to believe in the organization. We all as a leader probably – we all want that. And as a leader, we need to be that person that believes in those as well. If we want to get it, we should give it, right? Mm-hmm. 
All right. But what if your boss is a yes? And he's telling you to do stuff that is just stupid. Quit. You shouldn't have. Listen, there's, it's funny you said that, Peter. You know, one of the most frustrating things that, I, that I've experienced in my uh, 46 years is I, I always find it ironic when someone could say, you know, whether you're in the backyard having a beer or you're at work or whatever it is, and someone says, oh, yeah, my boss is an idiot or my organization doesn't know what's going on. Yet you take your money. But yet you take their money. Why don't you man up and tell them how you feel or leave? But to take someone's money and and be and, and, and get paid to do a job that you should be doing, yet and yet talking bad about them, I, I wouldn't want to. That's terrible. And so, if your boss is a putt or a yutz, as you say, you should quit. But it's hard to quit when you've got a mortgage and the need for health insurance and a spouse or a couple of kids. So. So it's okay because you need the money to work for someone you don't respect and then not respect them and take their money. It's like saying saying you shouldn't lie unless you really need to. You shouldn't steal unless you really need the money. I have four children. I have a mortgage and bills. We all do. You know, that's the problem. That's, the, that's one of the biggest problems we have in business. This is why good people are hard to find or um, people stay in jobs they shouldn't stay in because they, they think they need the job more than they actually want to do the work or, or be successful. And so they stay a job they still don't want to and they think they have to. And then employee, empl- leaders keep employees they don't want to keep because they think good people are hard to find. So everybody's doing a job no one really wants, and, and all we got to do – listen – there's plenty of opportunity out there. You just got to get up and go get it. But to say that you work for a, a yacht or a, a boss that doesn't get it, but yet you still take their money, I don't think the boss is the yacht. I think the person saying it is. Okay. Right? I'm not you're, sure you're, I agree because I've been in that position. So Yeah, uh, but, but so what's the – so let me ask you a question. If you were the boss – Right, mm-hmm. and you had an employee who says, "Man, this guy Peter, he doesn't have a clue. Right. I mean, he, he's a yachts. Would you want him on your team? No. Would you want him taking your money? No. So why is it okay to be that person but not that boss? That's what Serve Up Coach Down's about. Okay. Listen, I, if, if I'm your boss and you say, Nathan, I don't agree with you. I think you don't have a clue. I said, Peter, I, I appreciate your honesty, but I got to tell you something." I wouldn't work for someone or work somewhere or I didn't believe in or respect. You're a good man. There's a lot of organizations who would love to have you. You should go find that because you're never going to be the best version of you thinking that you're the best version of everyone. You're never going to be the best version of you doing a, doing a job that you don't want to do or doing it for a person you don't respect. Go find. Listen, don't blame. Don't blame your family and your mortgage for for uh, doing the job you don't want to do that's that's crazy go 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 do it hmm. or maybe the boss isn't the problem and so it's it's about it's about leadership with confidence in ourselves and humility and I, the last point on that Peter I'll give you is you know I do a lot of executive coaching and so I had a client on the phone with him Literally, yes, uh, Dave Friday, and he's kind of doing the same thing you're talking about. He's, he's up very upset with his boss, and 
the reason he's upset because his boss is getting on him because he's not getting the results. And I said, and I said, let me ask you a question, Chris. And he's talking about, you know, it's a matter of principle. And I said, is it principle or is it ego? Because it sounds like ego. And so, so often when we're in a job, and that's why leadership in the middle is so difficult. And that's why we talk about we've got to change our mindset. Chris's perspective, he wasn't, Chris isn't a bad person, his boss isn't a bad guy. They just have to look at, he just has to look at the perspectives of each. But his issue wasn't principle, it was ego. All right. Your title, Serve Up Coach Down, what does that mean? Serve Up Coach Down is exactly what it says. We should serve those who pay us. Whether it's a customer, you walk into a restaurant, you want great service. And I always tell people, be a servant and not customer service. If if you if I work for you, Peter, I should serve you. I, I make a point in the beginning of the book. I find it ironic that it's okay to serve a guest in our home. If I came to your house, Peter, as a guest, my wife and I, I'm assuming you would serve us nice drink and food, not mm-hmm. leftovers from last week. That's right. Not a half-open beer. That's or right. a, a flat or you know nasty old tea, and then you would probably give me if I was staying the night, you'd probably give me a nice clean room with clean sheets, and you'd even give me all three towels, right? The mm-hmm. the bath, the bathing towel, the the drying towel, and of course the hand towel no one uses, right? Right. And, and, and yet we find, it, and, and yet it's okay to serve someone who comes to our home, but it's not okay to serve those who help us pay for our home. And so serve up means we should serve those we follow. Everyone, everyone as a leader wants that employee that, man, they give everything they got. They make us look good. They make themselves look good. They're the ones we can count on. We all want that employee. We just don't want to like being that employee. And so serve up means we should believe in those we follow. We should – or we shouldn't be there. We should do our best to make them look good. And achieve our goals. And when we do that, we don't have to spend years and months trying to get buy-in because we already have belief. And the way we should, do, and the way we serve those we that, the way we serve those that we lead, we don't give them things. We don't serve them. We coach them. A leader's job is to make their people better, to get them promoted, to get them to achieve more success. And so. That's what the book's about, and that's why it's such a – if you look at the cover, we have these pyramids. We invert them. As a parent, my job is to make my kids great, whether he's 22 uh, years old or, or my six-year-old daughter. My job is to help them become great people. My job as a leader is to help my people become better so they can go find bigger and better careers, so they can be a difference. And, and that style and that content and that belief and that mindset and that discipline – is completely different, and that's what that's what it means. In, in essence, Peter, we're really serving both people. We're just serving those we follow by believing in them, and not thinking they're yutzes. And we're when we're serving those below us, not by making their problems go away, but by making them bigger than their problems. How do you want people to use the book? I want to change lives. Um, I'm a I'm a I'm a reader myself. I do a I listen or read a book every single day. My two favorites are still old school books. Um, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie is probably still one of my favorites. I read it twice a year. Um, Thinking Grow Rich is one of my favorite books. I want it to be that book. I want it to be that book that leaders say, hey, 
we need, I, I want it to be in 30 years. I want leaders to still say, you need to read this book, Serve Up, Coach Down. Because serving up is not about sucking up. It's about being the best you are. And, and so I believe when I wrote this book, this is my fifth one, is this is every in this book, every issue I dealt with as, a, uh, as an executive coach to clients, whether it's new leaders coming in, change of organizational structure, like we're going from a decentralization to centralized business, to uh, how do I keep power when my bosses in the same office, to morale, all those issues. They're all in the book. And so my goal is that this book sits in the office and not on a bookshelf but on people's desk. And when and, and it becomes the guideline and help organizations become aligned from top to bottom. I, I know it sounds hokey, man, but I want to change it. I want to be the book to change people's lives. Yeah, certainly a copy of your book on the desk looking dog-eared is better than a one in pristine shape on a bookshelf. That's, that's right. There's, that's, to your point, there's nothing cooler than when I'm doing a book signing. I do a lot of book signings at airports. And when someone walks up with one of my books and goes, here you go, and it's got dog ears and tabs and markers all over it, I love it. <laughs> it's like, hey, I, I did something where, you know, I did something right. It's nice. Okay. Nathan, do you have a website? I do. It's www.nathanjamel.com. All our information's there. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, the books you can buy all over the Internet, iTunes, Amazon, audio, uh, digital, and, and, of course, the natural book. And I'd like to say thank you to Nathan Jamel, his new book, that new book, Coach Serve Up, Coach Down, Mastering the Middle and Both Sides of the Leadership. Thanks, Peter. My pleasure, Nathan. Take care. You too. And you've been listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. Always interesting and provocative discussion in the living room. Your opinions, Sonny's reactions, I know I'll be listening. Thank you to Phil Jackson, this morning's producer, and to Ann Tideman Solomon, my dear wife and associate producer. Couldn't do the show without either one of you. Nothing left to say, but see you soon.